Okay, well, we might as well start. Um, my name's Adam Seedsman. Uh, I'm the Deputy Pro Vice Chancellor of Industry Engagement um, here at RMIT in the Hollywood business. Um, and my relevance to, to being here today is um, I work with the Australian APEC Study Centre, um, uh, which is in my portfolio. And I've always found it a very interesting business unit in terms of the, the business that it does, the people that it actually uh, comes into contact with, and what it does for the Asia Pacific region. Um, so I think, look, probably just um, to sort of set the tone, fairly informal today. Um, we've, we've got a number of presentations um, from, uh, from Kristen, from, uh, from David, and also from Dale, who have kindly joined us today. Um, and also, I think with this size group, and I was uh, just talking briefly before with a few people, uh, an opportunity to probably have a good discussion as well. Um, so it's not just uh, presentations, it's also an opportunity to have a, a bit of a discussion. Um, before we proceed, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we're meeting today, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay uh, our respects to their elders, both past and present, um, in terms of uh, you know, the Indigenous people of Australia. Um, we do a lot of work with the Indigenous um, peoples of Australia through RMIT, through a lot of our training programs, through vocational education, higher education. Um, recently, we've had uh, Mark McMillan join us as our um, Deputy Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Engagement and Education. Um, so RMIT has a, a rich history in that, and um, we uh, will continue to do that in the future as well. Um, this event, it's been organised by the Australian APEC Study Centre um, as part of Australia's Free Trade Agreement Training Provider Grant Scheme, um, which was established, I think as many of you know, to assist eligible organisations to deliver Tailor, uh, tailored technical training projects and events to help uh, small to medium-sized Australian businesses understand how to use and how to access free trade agreements. Um, the APEX Study Centre um, has been at RMIT University, I think, almost over 10 years now, and uh, as many of you would know, it's a leading research and capacity building institution across the Asia Pacific. Um, so working with the College of Business uh, and also with the industry engagement team, the Australian APEX Study Centre offers valuable global engagement, um, collaboration and learning opportunities for academics, students, uh, business uh, and government organisations throughout the region. So today's lunch, um, we're going to look specifically at the agreements signed by the Australian Government um, with uh, China, Japan and Korea and the array of opportunities um, for the Australian mining services sector and mining companies um, made available through such agreements. Um, I was just listening to a few people before talk about really understanding not only the agreements, but what do they actually enable companies to do and how do you actually understand how to take advantage of them and, and work them. Um, on that note, um, I'd like to hand you over to our first speaker, um, Kristen Bonadetti from ITS Global, um, who's going to provide us with some analysis on these agreements in the sector. Um, I'm sure that many of you do know, many of you don't know Kristen. Uh, Kristen's an expert in international trade law policy and development specialising in WTO agreements and free trade agreements. Areas of expertise include services, trade facilitation, technical and regulatory controls and trade subsidies uh, and trade and environment. Um, so just before Kristen starts, um, just thought I'd let you know you've got some feedback forms there so we'd love to hear your feedback at the end of the day, uh, just in terms of the session. Um, and then just in terms of housekeeping, just outside this door and to our right are bathrooms. Um, there's lunch here, um, it's fairly informal, so please feel free to get up and serve yourself some more lunch and what have you. Uh, and with that, I'll hand over to Kristen. Thank you, Adam. Um, if you can't hear me, please tell me. I tend to speak a little bit quietly, so if 
can I hear me just yell out? Um, what I'll do today is just take you through what, what FTAs are and what they seek to do. I'm going to focus on the North Asian FTAs with Korea, Japan and China, but equally happy to take questions on other FTAs at the end. But if you've got any questions as I go through, please stop me. I'm more than happy to clarify anything or answer questions as we go. So I'll speak about what FTAs do, what's their main purpose, why they might matter, what are some of the opportunities that there might be for businesses such as yours under these agreements, and then just make some comments on how to secure opportunities. So firstly, if we turn to what FTAs do, and I'm principally going to talk about services and investment. I'm not even going to talk about tariffs today because as trade is emerging and some of the major trends that are happening in trade, it's more than just tariffs. Okay. And our new FTAs that we have in place do more than simply remove tariffs. They regulate services and investment and they encapsulate a broad range of economic activity. So we're looking at services that are investment, government procurement, e-commerce, labour, environment, disciplines on state-owned enterprises much broader than what they used to be. And they also do more than simply open markets. They don't just remove tariffs. And as I'll speak about as we go along, they can go some way to helping improve the business environment, and they can also serve as a catalyst for market reforms in other economies, so to drive more open standards and regulations in the region. But again, when we talk about free trade agreements, we're talking about treaties between governments. They're international agreements. They're negotiated outcomes. So the benefits vary among the agreements and among the different areas of the agreements, and they basically depend on what has been agreed. So what do they do? What are we talking about when we talk about regulation of services and investment in a free trade agreement? We're talking about legal commitments for regulation. So what free trade agreements do is they can change or alter laws and regulations in the home market, and in the foreign market, which may or may not make it easier for business to invest or to provide services, whether that be across the border from Australia into another market, or whether that be in terms of setting up a business in the foreign market to deliver services there. So that's what FTAs do. What they don't do is that they don't grant free trade or completely free trade, and they won't guarantee export success, they won't guarantee necessarily market opportunities. It depends on what's being agreed. So why do they matter? Why are we even talking about this? When we're talking about services and investment, services are really important in the mining sector, and I don't need to tell you that. Mining activity involves a huge range of services not only in the MET sector, along the whole value chain, but also many services that are incidental to mine. And when we talk about trade today, we're not simply talking about services that are traded in their own right. We're talking about services that are incidental to goods activity. So services that are embodied or embedded in, in not only goods exports, but other services exports. And there's many in the mining sector. Project management, engineering, waste management, huge array of environmental services, um, software design, data development. Many of you here today will be providing a huge array of those services. 
and they're needed not only to help exports of goods, commodities, but also exports of other mining services as well. So presuming manufacturing of equipment, chemical technologies, there's a huge range of services that are provided. Having said that though, and you probably know this more than me, METs are also a very significant services export um, industry in their own right. And I've put up some of the statistics there that come from the Ostmine uh, business survey and the Ostmine work. Um, so you can see over $90 billion in revenue, and the majority of, of um, businesses are exporters. So the trade area is very important. And I'd just say also that bringing back to that point of how important embedded services are in embodied services are in other goods. This is just illustrating, it just gives you a sense of how important services are in terms of their value-added contribution to Australian exports. Of course, this is not exclusive to the mining sector because, as I've just pointed out, mining services are spread across a whole range of other services sectors. Very difficult to define in that sector, very difficult to encapsulate exactly what services are required in trade. But as you can see there, in terms of Australia, this shows the value of the contribution of all services to Australian exports. Transport is significant. Business and ICT, other business encapsulates all the professional services, like project management, um, engineering, and so forth. Construction and distribution, all really important. And you find a lot of the services in the mining sector spread across all these categories. So, services are really important in mining trade. An open service is an investment matter, as I pointed out. Services now play a critical role in trade and rise over 50% of world trade on a value-added basis. And as I pointed out, have a very important role as inputs into broader economic activity. Investment as well. The picture of trade is not complete if we don't also mention investment, which is now a key driver of growth. Global FDI flows are growing faster than trade at the moment, and over half of the of the MET sector offshore. I think the statistic from the Ultimine survey was about 52% of businesses are now operating offshore. And as you all know, the mining industry relies on the FDI, not only for resource <coughs> funds, but also technology, know-how and marketing. Very important for Australia. But barriers to services and investment are still quite high and problematic in that sense. So restrictions on services trade are high, two, three to times higher than they are for trade goods. And particularly in the mining sector, there are tariffs, but as I understand it, the tariffs are not high, except as in India. Um, but services are very important, there's still high barriers. They're rated as a top impediment to trade in APEC. And importantly, commitments to liberalise services in most free trade agreements have not been widespread, with the exception of Australia, the US, and a few other economies. You find most economies in the Asia Pacific region, particularly the ASEAN economies, have not made significant commitments in their FTAs to open services. There's still quite a long way to go. And of course, the mining industry is impacted, given the broad range of regulatory requirements that affect trade across the whole manufacturing value chain, 
and also, as I mentioned before, the broad scope of services that are affected. So you might have regulations in engineering that important. You might have barriers to um, exploration. You might have licensing requirements for construction project management. There's a whole huge range of bar potential barriers and regulatory requirements that may fall within the reach of these FTAs. So services are important, investment are important, but barriers are high. This is a little analysis that's taken from 2015 data which we did for DFAT and um, at the APEC Secretariat, just measuring the level of barriers and restrictions and services across the various sectors. So you can see there that the blue line indicates the level of how restrictive the barriers are, and the red line shows the number of economies that are affected. So, for example, if you add up all the transport there, which has got maritime, air, road, and rail, you can see the barriers across the transport sector across APEC are numerous. Similarly, with the professional services sector, quite high. <coughs> so, services and investment are important. Also, North Asian markets are important. So, they're not only a major export market for energy and mineral exports. As we all know, China's the largest export destination, Japan uh, and Korea are important. And they're also growing markets for men's exports. Um, in the Osline survey, um, I think 23% of companies identified North and East Asia as potential export opportunities. China was rated as one of the top markets for new opportunities, um, along with India. And they're also very source, very important source of foreign investment. We've seen recently rising levels of foreign direct investment from China and Japan, which you can see from the chart. And China is also the largest recipient of um, FDI approvals on the FIRB um, decision making process for um, investment in mining. I think it was about 1.5 billion in mining approvals were granted between 2015 and 16. So, as you can see here, there's been rising levels of foreign direct investment, which have I guess coincided with the signing of the free trade agreements. Um, Japan on the upward trajectory, um, China's increased in since 2012, and a slight uptick from um, Korea as well. And that's a stock of investment across all the sectors. This shows uh, China's rising investment, including mining and across services. So this is data which is actually created by um, Chinese, we don't actually collect it by sector, by country. But you can see there increasing investment in mining in China, increasing levels, and also across the services sector from 2012. Um, so, in addition to the rising levels of investment and services, it's important to note that in these economies, there are policy agendas that do create growth opportunities. So Korea, Japan and China all understand that their economies still need reform in the services area. And to an extent, free trade agreements have facilitated this or in some ways provided justifications for domestic reforms. So in the same way that China used the World Trade Organization entry back in 2001, to drive the process of liberalisation in its services sector and across its economy. 
Some of these free trade agreements have had a similar uh, function. For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Um, Japan has used to push through some domestic reforms. Korea used its bilateral agreement with the United States 10 years ago in order to push through some of its um, domestic reforms as well. More broadly, China has treated review of an APEC-wide FTA. Some time off, of course, but there is interest there. And as a general point, is moving towards reorienting the economy towards services and technology and further away from its production as a long-term goal. So there are some opportunities there to facilitate the effectiveness of the FTAs. So that really is just set the scene for why investment and services are important, why it's important for the mining industry. What I'll do now is just go through some of the go through the FTAs and just give you a flavour of some of the things the FTAs might do for business. And we've basically broken it down to five main things. So, and I'll go through each of these in turn. Firstly, and what people talk about most, is delivering commercial opportunities. So making it easier to access or to invest in foreign markets. And typically that's what, when the government talks about market access, that's typically what we're talking about. There's also a function of improving the business operating environment, so going beyond the border, beyond the tariff reduction, beyond the market access commitment, to see what these free trade agreements can do to make operation in the market easier, make things more transparent, make it easier to do business. Thirdly, and I think this is often overlooked when we look at the free trade agreements, is the importance they have in terms of expanding investment, whether that may be in terms of outward investment by Australian companies, or whether that is in encouraging foreign investment into Australia. It's also really important. Another thing free trade agreements can do is improve these outcomes over time. A lot of them set up mechanisms in which to facilitate further liberalisation or to address specific trade concerns. And lastly, a broader overriding, overriding policy function, which is to support more open and competitive markets in the region standards of function. So just to give you some examples of how this is done in the free trade agreements, firstly in terms of delivering commercial opportunities, there are some direct benefits from greater market access, including for mining companies. So this may be in terms of new rights to establish and supply services, which previously didn't exist. So legal commitments to allow companies to operate there. Um, there are some commitments in the, the China agreement, to expand the delivery of mining-related services, technical and consulting services, which previously were not granted, or were, had, were granted under more restrictive terms. For example, there may have been, um, I think, um, lower levels of foreign investment. Um, There's also, um, in some of the free trade agreements, what we call WTO plus access or treatment provided, which means that the existing level of access that was provided to firms under WTO has been improved upon in these free trade agreements. So for example, in the Korean agreement and the China agreement, Australian companies have the capacity to provide environmental services, um, more environmental services than other countries which do not have an FTA with China. So that's in what's disposal services and some other environmental services. So new rights, new legal rights. More importantly, however, in my view, I think some of the indirect benefits have been greater. And these have really arisen from 
gen the general expansion of trade and economic activity that's happened as a result of the FTAs or has coincided with the FTAs being signed. And particularly important for services providers because as, for example, goods trade has expanded under, under the free trade agreements, perhaps as tariffs have gone down and levels have increased, services providers have been able to leverage that expanded activity to provide their own services. And it's particularly the case where we're talking about services that are embodied in goods trade. So for example, as mining activity is expanded, then there's been a greater need, for example, for exploration services, for equipment services, for engineering services, for project management services. All the things that go along with expanded goods trade um, has driven greater services activity as well. And likewise, for outward bound, outbound and intra-ASEAN investment flows, the more investment activity you get, so benefits from increased market access, but also perhaps some capacity to alter, positively alter the regulatory landscape in FTA markets. So there are various provisions in these trade agreements which seek to enhance transparency of regulations in foreign markets, that seek to discipline state-owned enterprises, operate more competitively in the market and there are also provisions which encourage governments to facilitate mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Um, a lot of these commitments in the free trade agreements are not hard and binding but they do sit there and they do help to encourage um, governments and business to improve what we call beyond the border for the regulatory landscape. So I've just put up there some examples of some of the commitments. So the Japan Agreement has a dedicated chapter on minerals and energy resources. And there are provisions in that chapter for governments to exchange information and consult over regulations for energy and minerals, including raising bilateral trade concerns that might and there is provision in the agreement for the private sector to have some access into that um, consultation mechanism. So that's quite important. There are also disciplines in the Japan and China agreement which seek to encourage state-owned enterprises, um, exclusive service providers and monopolies to operate more competitively. So the general provisions against anti-competitive conduct, which are supposedly enforceable through administrative mechanisms. And there are also agreements to encourage mutual, mutual recognition agreements. And these typically are not done at the intergovernmental level. They're agreements between um, industry bodies who um, undertake the agreement to do that outside of the FTA but encouraged by the FTA. So for example, in the Korean agreement there is a provision to, for governments to encourage mutual recognition in the engineering sector. In 2015, the um, Engineers Australia did reach a mutual uh, recognition agreement with the Korean counterpart to look at easing qualification requirements between the two economies. Just some results there. Also important for the mining sector, movement of people across borders. So there are provisions in the agreements to facilitate skilled labour, for example, in the Japan agreement, particular agreements for engineering persons, qualified persons, um, and also provisions to encourage um, and address shortages for lower skilled labour in Australia. So the investment facilitation agreements which are established under the China Agreement 
um, allow um, Chinese businesses operating in Australia to um, some labour market flexibilities. I think it's under four, five, seven B one system hasn't been changed um, to bring in labour for infrastructure development projects, which are over one hundred fifty million dollars. So some flexibilities there. Investment also important under free trade agreements. There are, well, they do have a capacity to expand uh, Australian investment abroad. So Australian investments now receive protection under these free trade agreements, so legal standards for investment protection. Typically, you'll find them in bilateral investment treaties that they've now been brought into to free trade agreements. Um, so, for example, um, investors in China now receive greater protections under the agreement than previously existed. In terms of liberalisation for investments, so making it easy to set up and establish a business or operate in a foreign country, um, they do. There are commitments for those in Japan and Korea agreements. China has not yet made any commitments to guarantee liberalisation for new investments in the FTA. There are protections for existing Australian investments in China, but greater liberalisation in China is subject to further commitments which China will make in the future. There's an inbuilt mechanism, which we'll talk about in a minute, whereby China has agreed to negotiate more commitments to open its investment sector um, over time. That process of review is currently underway with the Australian government, and so we'll see what happens there. Um, and I've just put up on the screen there, at the same time that China is doing this, it's doing a similar thing with its negotiations and its agreement with New Zealand. So the New Zealand-China agreement is being updated to include some more investment liberalisation as well. And China is also negotiating in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which includes all the ASEAN economies, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, China, and India. And there will be investment in that agreement as well. There's a few things going on there. Importantly as well, these free trade agreements can encourage foreign investment in Australia. So not only do direct investments from Korea, Japan and China become more attractive by the raising of the FIRB thresholds, which is equivalent to other FTO partners, but also another important factor of the um, conclusion of the free trade agreements is perhaps the head-turn effect that these agreements have had. So as a result purely of having the agreement, an intergovernmental agreement, particularly in the case of China and Korea, there is an enhanced perception of Australia as an investment, as a foreign investment, a destination for foreign investment. Um, we, um, about this time last year, we did a study with PwC which looked at the, um, attempted to assess the impact of these FTAs on business decisions. We, as a, during the study, we spoke to a range of businesses about what were the impacts on the businesses um, as a rising from this retro. And most of the businesses operating, particularly in China and Korea, said, look, the most positive thing that's happened out of these FTAs is that Australia is more visible in the market. Australia is a more, is a more trusted destination for investment. We're seeing more activity simply because we're more on the map now. And particularly when it came to services and investment, it had been very important in Korea. Because the trade relationship with Korea, particularly in services, is not anywhere as long-standing as it may have been the case. Is the case of Japan, for example. 
it is quite hard to measure these, particularly when it comes to services and investment. And I think we need to keep in mind that these agreements are still quite new. Um, the China agreement only entered into force in 2016, so it's in a way a little bit too early to be measuring the benefits. Um, as you well know, it takes time to factor in regulatory changes into investment decisions and um, it can be quite hard to see immediate results. Also, the whole point with services is that they're very difficult to quantify. It's not like goods where you can measure, for example, marginal preference on the tariff reduction, measuring how more open service or a reduced restriction or regulation has impact on business is very difficult. And of course, it goes without saying that what we're looking at here is only one very small part of doing business and exporting. We're looking at free trade agreements, we're looking at regulations which are just one part of the story in the broader business context, of course, which you know well more than I do. So as I pointed out before, it's business that tries to invest and obviously it requires more than changes to regulation. So FTAs can do their bit to possibly help, but more needs to be done if they are going to benefit in the world. So I'll just leave it there. But if anyone has any questions, please, I'm more than happy to answer them. Clarifications? Um, you asked a, said you could ask a question from other FDA. How do they interact with the FTA with RCR? Is there much of a difference? Um, I'd say the RCR FTAs as a whole, the commitments for services and investment, I can't speak specifically about the mining sector, but are less liberal. So our general view would be that particularly the agreements with Korea and Japan are more comprehensive, greater commitments Chinese um, 
maybe in here. So there is definitely an indication that they're willing to engage in that area. But from what we're hearing about what's happening in the asset negotiations, um, I think the agenda of Australia and New Zealand in terms of investment is considered to be quite ambitious, um, particularly by the ASEANs and potentially China. So five years down the road, could, could potentially see some improvements under the chapter and the bilateral sense, but in terms of ASEP delivering any major improvements in investment liberalisation, just given the mix of the parties, you've got ASEAN, you've got China, you've got India in there. Um, I'll say we have low expectations for any substantial investment. Um, I mean, there will always be industrial-specific examples, which obviously the governments will be negotiating based on specific interests, but as, as across the board, I would expect Yeah, I mean, just given just just the mix of the parties with Arzin in there, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, yeah, maybe just as a general comment, you maybe agree or disagree, but I think what you find is the bilaterals are high quality agreements, simply because of the fact they're easier to negotiate than the multilateral ones. You can achieve more, arguably, but in a bilateral sense, <coughs> often the people, the trade officials who are involved, say it's far easier to negotiate things which are higher quality than when you're also concerning parties and counterparties in the negotiation. So you so rightly said that it's up to the firms to really secure the opportunities that are out there with the different FTAs, but I was thinking of, well, of course the, the trade negotiators who put the FTA together. Um, but oftentimes the FTAs really function where, when the firms are there in a very early stage. So trade negotiators get a lot of real market information from the companies. Is that something that you have seen in the, you've mentioned three of the FTAs, is that something that you're aware of? Um, I, I can't comment on DFAT's process for taking into account industry views. Um, They've probably got more to say on that, but certainly in our experience, um, if there is a specific interest interest that business has, it's always valuable to push that or put that to the government because DFAT, well, they will run with the negotiations and do what they need to do, but if they've got a specific interest in mind, yeah, definitely it's, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are you? No, I DFAT's always very keen to get a business perspective on these things. Um, certainly in our areas and probably in the mining sector, we find them very, um, they reach out a lot and um, they're quite responsive to any comments we want to Just on that question of bilaterals better than multilaterals, what's the prospect of uh, Indonesia or Australia SEPA delivering something, or is that? Too hard as well. <laughs> um, last I heard that, well, originally the agreement was supposed to be concluded by the end of last year, but um, as I understand it, there's been some problems in Indonesia being forthcoming in terms of offering anything more meaningful than what's currently in the ANSPATAR Australia New Zealand Asian Free Trade Agreement. So, as I understand it, they're still negotiating on trying to get some meaningful outcomes. 
because the government's very much focused on ensuring that there is something in the agreement that is an improvement upon what we've currently got. So I think it's just you know, being a little bit problematic. But I'm not sure when we'll see a result, but hopefully. Okay, um, well I might uh, say thank you very much uh, Kristen for, for that part of uh, today's sort of roundtable discussion and presentations um, and obviously you hear this as well so any other questions as well uh, to Kristen as we're going through the day. Um, now I'd like to invite uh, David, David Byers who's the Interim Chief Executive at the Minerals Council of Australia. Um, to, uh, to sort of present to us this afternoon. Um, David's uh, been a member of the Minerals Council since uh, July 16, I think. Um, yes. uh, but before that, I had a, a long career doing many other things, including sort of, uh, obviously, resources sector, but time with ExxonMobil Corporation in a variety of senior roles, uh, planning human resources um, across Melbourne, Singapore, Dallas, and elsewhere. So, David, welcome, thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, uh, everyone. Um, I think, Dale, you're going to talk a little bit more from the services perspective, aren't you? Yes, so I'll be talking about METS or mining engineering, <coughs> technical common services. That's good. Okay, so this is about digging. Excellent. Well, that'll, that'll work out properly. Because I'll have some comments about METS, but I'm going to talk you know, largely about sort of what's happening in the mining industry and try to give you some context as to what's happening there, really what's been happening over the past 10 years. Um, and secondly, just to sort of put that export story that we have now into some sort of sharp relief, there's been some huge shifts over the past decade um, as a result of the mining boom and what that means for mining exports and services exports from the mining sector compared to other sectors. And finally, I will make some comments on some of the FTAs, if you like, opportunities and challenges both for the mining sector and METS, and I'm sure Dale will pick up the theme in respect of um, METS. So firstly, do I point this at this thing here? Is that right? Is it the red one there? <coughs> this is a, um, a slide which just gives you um, the results of a study that we did, which was all about the economic contribution of the mining and the med sector. I mean, people tended to know a little bit about the mining sector and the med sector, but this is something that we did with Deloitte's Access Economics last year. Um, and you see that the numbers are very, very uh, large, $198 billion, and accounting now for, this is for mining only, over 50% of Australia's export income. Interestingly, when we wanted to sort of look at the contribution of the entire sector, mining and METS, um, you run into some rapid problems of definition with the METS sector. And it's one of the things that we did sort of spend a lot of time on in putting this study together, was to make sure that we really did reflect the mining equipment and technology and services aspects of the sector, the direct contribution to the industry. But anyway, the, the numbers there are that when you roll together mining and nets, together they contribute 15% of Australia's GDP. Over 1.1 million employees, so that's basically one in 10. And um, for the mining sector now, post the massive investment boom, you have a net capital stock of $850 million, which is very large number. Okay, <clears throat> METS. Uh, there's a sort of graphic, I suppose, of some of the, 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 the major METS sectors we're talking about, but if you like to sort of cluster it, I'd sort of think about it in three different areas. Heads in the road. 
Firstly, um, the services sector. Uh, so there you get everything from contract miners, down our EDI, many of you would be familiar with them providing lots of services to the industry, right through to people providing sort of support services for the sector. Secondly, there's those manufacturers of equipment for mines, um, and you know there's there's a number of those which are sort of important players, even some here in Victoria. Um, Gecko mining comes to mind, for example. Um, a lot of work in the gold industry for Gecko. And thirdly, there's that category of specialised technologies. Um, increasingly here, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on, it's in the communications area, it's software, and it's IT. Something like 60%, I think the number is, of all of the mining software uh, in the world comes out of Australia. <coughs> this shows you um, the uh, Australia's export um, revenue across the board, and <coughs> it shows it in mining, tourism, rural services, uh, rural goods, manufacturing, and other services. Now, if you look at more, clearly, it's, it's clear where mining is there. That includes petroleum as well, by the way, oil and gas. But if you look at um, where METS comes in, METS really comes into the first category there, which is mining, because of that contract services comes into that part of it. Under manufacturing, you'll see a lot of the equipment manufacturing, drills and machinery comes out of that sector. And finally, in the other services, it's geoscience, it's IT, it's those specialised technologies. So, you know, this is one of the things which is confronting the med sector, I think, is there's no, the way in which the Australian Bureau of Statistics codes work, there's a readily identifiable mining sector, there's not a readily identifiable med sector. You have to really thumb through the detail to get a sense of, you know, what its contribution is overall. This uh, chart shows you really, really what's been happening in the mining industry since 2000 and what we call the three phases of the, of the boom. The first boom was driven by price, which incentivised a lot of involvement and investment in the sector. In the second phase, there was that huge mining boom, that's what people associate with the mining boom from 2010-11 through to 2015. And the final phase, which we're now seeing, which we're in, is the production phase. And um, what we're left with is a much larger industry now, post that investment boom. Uh, the iron ore industry, for example, is about three times bigger than it was in, in every dimension that, that, uh, before the start of the, uh, the boom. And the other thing which I would say is that while commodity prices have come off in recent years, those enhanced volumes mean that the contribution to Australia's exports has stayed very, very high simply because of that sort of volume um, number there. Okay, where do those, resor those resources exports go? You can see primarily um, China is just a huge market now and the big growth has been in China. 2006 to 2007 shown on the blue line there and the orange line 2016-17. Uh, but the other markets are emerging. Japan has always been you know, one of the constant um, uh, mainstays in the Australian resources sector, really right back to the 50s. Uh, Japan really you know, has, has continues to be a very, very important um, player for us. Um, but the ones which you know everyone is excited about, of course, is India, because it's very much now a lot of investment going into India, as in as India's 
uh, starts to open up its economy, it starts to look at um, you know, it, its, its GDP starts to improve, its growth and uh, economic growth starts to make an impression, then it's going to be a big market of the future. And similarly, it's that sort of Southeast Asian uh, corner as well, where a lot of the uh, increased demand for coal is coming from, really funding the industrialisation and the urbanisation which is going on in those countries. Okay. Mm. Uh, will it be as big as China? I don't think so. I think you can see there just simply for the size of the population in China um, and also the size of the economy. I mean, China, who knows when it will happen, but I mean, most of the economists are saying that one day China will exceed the United States as, you know, as the most consequential global economy. I don't know about, um, I think India's got a long way to go. The thing in India's favour is demographics. Um, it has a lot of younger people coming through, whereas China's had a relatively aging population. So that's going to stimulate a lot more growth out in the future. But it's a, uh, it's, it's a, a good question, you know, who's going to be the biggest player. I just think that given where China is now, given the way in which they've been able to organise their economy, given they've had sort of 10 to 20 years of a track record of being able to do so and maintain it at a relatively high level, uh, it's going to be very hard to match that from a country which doesn't have the same degree of central planning, doesn't have the same degree of command and control in its uh, economy uh, in, in the case of India. India, I think, will be more regionalised. Gujarat is, for example, one of the places where people talk about there's uh, one of them the leading lights of uh, mining and, uh, and infrastructure development. Um, but whichever way you look at it, it's going to be very important. Uh, there's a lot of Companies now, which are looking very much towards India, and particularly some of the infrastructure, which infrastructure build which India is going through. Okay, the um, key export values um, you can see here. Just look at the huge growth in iron ore. As just to take one example, the blue line there was 2000 to 2001. You know, less than 10 billion dollars. When you look at where it is now, uh, the orange line there. You're up about 63, $64 billion over that period of history. So that's what's happening in the industry. Similarly, metallurgical coal, and that's a lot of that is linked to what's been happening in the steel industry, particularly in places like China, but also in India, uh, which is a big source uh, globally for metallurgical coal. Exports coming out of Australia, and thermal coal as well. I mean, a lot of people are predicting you know, the death of coal, the decline of coal. Um, we certainly don't see that uh, when we look at what's happening in some of those growth areas in Southeast Asia and also in India. Certainly it's true that thermal coal has, has flattened out in China, as you would expect. Um, there's been a lot of moves happening in China, driven by environmental reasons, um, cleaning up air pollution and the like, where there's been a, a shift across to gas as a primary source. But you're still seeing that thermal coal um, exports from Australia's China still remains one of our biggest markets um, and some of that is coming about from substitution for domestic coal um, production uh, of Chinese coal production so our major three exports there uh, in, and the third one being of course gold and Australian gold production as well has, has really been seen some phenomenal growth um, from that period 2000 to 2001 Right through to 2016-17. Okay, so 
having that little bit of context, you now turning our attention to free trade agreements, I mean, Chris has given a comprehensive answer to the benefits of, of um, free trade agreements, but let me just think about this in terms of what the benefits have been for mining and thinking here about China and Korea and Japan. Look, the, the major and most obvious benefits has been that there's now zero tariffs effectively uh, on commodities. If I look back before CHAFTA, China had a 3% um, tariff on coking coal and a 6% tariff on thermal coal. That um, coking coal 3% tariff has been removed <coughs> immediately on the signing of CHAFTA. The thermal coal 6% is sort of progressively being staged down. I think the last move was actually, in fact, it would have been the end of last year, so it really should be uh, down to zero percent now. <coughs> so that's been the first benefit. The other one is, I think, picks up on a couple of comments that um, Christian made. It's the mechanisms to review non-tariff barriers, which we see, such as investor state dispute mechanism, that sort of thing. It's very hard to put value on these things. But from the point of view of being an investor in those markets, these are one of the benefits of actually having a free trade agreement. <coughs> if you get involved in a dispute with um, the uh, investor state, then there's a mechanism and a way to be able to sort of handle any kind of dispute. So, and for countries that are not necessarily uh, in free trade agreements as well, the fact that they are going down the pathway of having a free trade agreement submits you to a process whereby you're starting to show that you are prepared to be able to be subject to these kinds of, um, if you like, third-party dispute mechanisms. So it gives a sense of confidence, and I can come back and talk a little bit about that in the Q&A, uh, to companies that are going to participate in those markets. And the third thing, which certainly from the perspective of the mining industry we're seeing, is that in these markets, because they do bring some services liberalisation, if you think of it from the point of view of a mining company operating in any of these countries, Korea, or China, it meant, and particularly this is the case with China, it means you've got a much more competitive services market with Australian companies, and not just Australian companies, but uh, other countries around the region being able to compete into those markets. It means, from the perspective of a major mining company, you have a more competitive environment for uh, services suppliers. <coughs> Having said all of that, though, there remain some major challenges, and um, I talked about the tariff situation in uh, China. One of the probably biggest issues for the industry has been the non-tariff areas. And the best example I can give to you of that has been in the area of um, product quality. Um, China has introduced these coal quality standards. Now, they're driven, apparently, um, well, their argument is by environmental reasons, but also health reasons. But there is an argument to say, given the way in which they've been implemented, is it really a, a really more of a drive, reflecting more of a drive to protect some of their domestic coal production? Um, the way in which this works is that um, China's introduced some coal quality testings in two areas, fluorine, fluorine and also phosphorus. Um, those tests are normally not required in other countries, but China's introduced the requirement for the testing. And if there are these sorts of tests, then typically what happens is that the post-government would uh, recognise the um, testing at the low port. Now, in the case of China, um, it doesn't recognise any testing that might be done, for example, in, in Australia before you go overseas. That's been an issue. All the testing is required to be carried out by the um, 
at the China Inspection Quarantine Authority. That's led to a lot of delays at the port, 10 to 20, in some cases, days up to six weeks. And um, it's also been a, a bit of an issue too in terms of non-uniformity of the way in which those testing centres have been applied. So I, I give that as an example to say that, you know, there are, you know, some very good uh, provisions coming out of the free trade agreements, but often what you still find is sort of stubborn ways to be able to uh, introduce non-tariff barriers. Um, and arguably, you could say these are somewhat against the spirit and the intent of an agreement like chapter, but it's, um, it's a very difficult thing to be able to um, resolve. And I will say on this one, I think that our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has been doing a great job in trying to resolve this issue on behalf of Australian coal producers. So there is, you know, to you, whoever asked the question before about DFAT, uh, I, I must say they've been very good at uh, taking account of the industry. And, and we acknowledge that this is a complex issue. I mean, you know, um, there are a number of things which the Chinese are trying to balance here. Uh, but nonetheless, it is an issue which does have some uh, impacts on. Uh, the uh, coal exporters from Australia. I was going to make a comment though, but even uh, our experience, even if they're not free trade agreements, these, these processes are in fact that we, we find exported to 69 countries. Yes. It's our biggest um, impact is trying to, like I picked Russia. Yeah, which company? Which company? Oh, we're with Technology, we do intrusion detection technology. Yes. yes. So the Russians will, for example, the Russians will test to assist the 22 standard. Yeah, it's got to be with Russians, you've got to pay right. on. So no harmonisation from FCC or And it adds probably five or six months more to do work. Yes. Even just on one purchase order. Yes. So it's, it's a very serious issue, that one, I think. It is, and I was going to talk about that on the mess too, because I can see that I think it's even a bigger issue there, because these ones are sort of relatively obvious. They're talking about major commodities. With some of the work that you're involved in, it's less obvious, and there are still some tariff barriers still up there in different experts. But effectively, they do do with the Sinai Tech Out business because it's Russia. So, but that, that's a very significant issue when that's used, and it is quite it is used against you. It's no, yes. no doubt that it is much just for cost as uh, as little yeah. other things. That's right. So, and, and, and <coughs> I guess there is that sort of you know broad category too of you know some of the regulation in these countries being quite opaque, unpredictable, um, you know, both in terms of regulation but also in terms of taxation. Now, free trade agreements, they help to screen a lot of those things out, but um, as some of the major companies say, well yes they do David, but the facts are stubborn and we still see these kinds of issues there. And really moving now to, um, if you like, outside of the, um, the China, Korea and Japan envelope into other countries which are in the region major customers. One of the things we see for on the mining side is the rise of some resources nationalism. Um, two countries I point to there, Indonesia and the Philippines, where you know, you're either having to operate in tandem with a local partner or you're having to um, or a joint venture company or you're having to kind of give over certain parts of the, of the process to local involvement. Again, those those are things which are, if you like, nothing to do with the FTAs which have been negotiated, but they're the sorts of things which 
some of the mining companies look out for when they're going into new countries, um, new countries of entry. And then um, finally, with regard to METS, I guess this is sort of Dale, I'm sure, will pick up some of these things, so I won't sort of uh, pound it to, to death. But I think the opportunity is clearly there given the economic growth in Asia, um, the urbanisation, industrialisation, infrastructure, energy storage. So there are those opportunities there, that's fundamentally driving it. The other issue is when I think about the med sector and I think about its relationship to mining is Australia really is world leading in mine development. You know, that's in the active phase of developing a mine and planning and all, all that goes with that. And so there are many disciplines that go with that where Australia has made you know, something of a reputation in the med sector. Uh, and I'm talking about areas of geotechnical consultants, um, mining, electrical <coughs> process engineering, a lot of good Australian mining engineers in quite senior positions around the world. That has a benefit effect, I think, a beneficial effect, I think, for some of the services companies, even if they migrate across into the uh, services sector. Environmental science and mine rehabilitation, you know, it's something where very much uh, the standards that we, um, the major companies operate to in Australia are really much higher than many places around the world. And I mentioned as well the mining computer software, which a lot of which comes out of Australia. So that's an important um, factor in terms of you know, Australia's reputation in world-leading mining development. And the second one, I think, which is um, important here is the new technologies. Um, particularly if I you know, mention two companies here, and I, without at the risk of offending everyone else, but I'll do it, um, BHP and Rio Tinto are very much, because they're in that bulk commodity market, they're investing heavily in um, digital technologies, analysis of big data, um, automation, all in a drive to be able to improve their productivity, develop repeatable processes, and therefore that sort of, there's a lot of sort of world-leading technological development just coming out of the mining sector. And it would surprise you to know that a lot of the investment is going into more into communications technologies and the like now friend over here will probably attest to that, than say the traditional kind of mine development technologies. So that sort of, I'm not suggesting that's sort of applicable across the entire industry, but certainly for the major players in the bulk commodity space, this is becoming very much a game, part of their game plan. And a lot of Australian companies are providing services into that sort of area, which there are opportunities therefore globally to be able to um, apply those skills. Um, Indonesia, I think someone mentioned Indonesia before, and we can talk about this a little bit more, I suppose, but Indonesia consistently um, ranks as either the top or the second top uh, market in the ASEAN for MEDS firms. And I think this is probably dominated by some of the mining services companies, such as the Downers and Thesis and companies like that you would know of, which are involved very much in the construction phase. But increasingly, it's in some of the specialised um, development, uh, specialised equipment areas as well, where a lot of Australian NETS companies, suppliers, are involved in Indonesia, um, and 140 NETS firms in fact. And I mentioned that the other area, a big opportunity really is in India. I know, for example, you know, BHP talks a lot about the opportunities available in India to be, a, to be a major supplier 
as um, and we have um, Raj from Adani here who can talk about really more about what's going on in India than I can. But um, it's a very exciting kind of area, I think, of growth for services companies, which I'm sure Raj will have a comments on. And finally, look in the challenges area, and again, picks up a couple of these themes. Um, you still have some tariffs in the services sector. You do have a number of non-tariff measures, product standards and imports licenses. I think they are very much the kinds of things which MEDS companies are really um, put through their own experience out. Red tape, but the big one probably is protection of intellectual property. That's not always standardised. It can be a, a quite a consideration being able to participate in some of these markets. And the final one I've sort of put here is that it's probably more of a, a commentary on the structure of the MEDS sector uh, in Australia. We have very few, very large firms. They tend to be sort of smaller SMEs, and they're not sort of at the status of being, if you like, global one regional equipment manufacturers. Um, you don't tend to find, you know, a lot of the tier one uh, miners, for example, they tend to like to deal with the global original equipment manufacturers, such as the Komatsu and Caterpillar, companies like that, Hitachi because they want to do things in the same way around the world. So that becomes, you know, if you like, that's a structural issue. Um, not saying that it's not sort of soluble, but it is a sort of factor, I think, that we need to recognise as a challenge for mess suppliers going global, that there is that question of scale and therefore capacity to be able to sort of link into the supply chains of some of those major and the other one too, I suppose, is you know nothing stays the same, and it's fair to say that even in some of these developed, the rapidly developing <coughs> countries, um, we're finding a um, you know there's a local mid sector starting to emerge. So it's obviously going to be a source increasingly of competition for Australian mid suppliers in these markets. But um, I think the opportunity is still a very very big one. Acknowledging that there's still a few challenges that we've Thank you. Thanks, David. Anybody have any questions for David at this point or any comments? David, I have, uh, have a question. You, you put up a, a graph showing the, the top exports, I think it was iron ore, metallurgical yes. coal, coal, thermal coal, gold. Um, where do you see, or what does the Mineral Council of Australia see lithium playing forward in the future in the Asia region, given that the Japanese government is practice yes. looking at developing yeah. indigenous lithium manufacturing capacity for storage cells, etc., yeah. and India heading down that road with government policy announcing their intent for indigenous uh, electric vehicle? I actually had a slide on lithium, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'll talk to you long if I talk about lithium as well. But so, but I so I, I haven't, I can't give you a picture, but it's very important. But it needs to be said that you know you have to. It's a question of scale, and you look at where these products are now. You know, they are the mainstays of Australia's exports. Lithium is still quite small. It's undergoing rapid development. Um, there's a number of um, quite substantial lithium players now. Miners developing in Australia. It's certainly we see it very positively. But it is going to be an area of growth for the future. Um, but again, I think we just have to be mindful of where it is now versus where, say, the bulk commodities are. And <clears throat> certainly in, in terms of growth rates, 
people being repeatable will be faster than that's coming from a much, much smaller place. And the other thing is that, again, it's a, it's a matter of competition. We have some, I forget the number, we have sort of quite large global lithium deposits. But the way in which you know, the resources sector operates is that once there is a market for something, there's therefore more incentive to go looking for it in other markets as well. And um, so there'll be, you know, no doubt other sort of provinces and countries which are sources of competition. But I do think generally we've got a little bit of a leading edge in here in Australia developing lithium resources. David, so you showed a, um, a slide with the three phases of the mining regions. Um, just, just a bit of a cheeky question. When do you see the next mining group? <laughs> Fundamentally, it's probably going to have to be. See, the, the interesting thing about the mining industry is you know, a lot of what you've seen here in iron ore and in coal has really been linked very heavily to industrialisation and Asian growth. I don't think we're going to, I mean, with this, there's some unmet demand in China, uh, sorry, in India, but that, they've been sort of phenomenal kind of once in a century sort of areas. Um, but if you look at, you know, where the other sort of products are going to come into it, um, I know that BHP is very bullish on copper over the long term because of its, um, yeah, it's intrinsic to many of the renewables developments. Um, you, know, you need sort of, you need copper. Um, there are people who are very bullish on um, things, well, even, even steel manufacturers require for any kind of renewables revolution. Um, something like 80% of windmills is steel. So I'm not sure we're going to see a, a, that sort of huge volume growth repeated because that was just a little once in a lifetime thing. I think it'll be slower, but I certainly think that there's still a lot of interest in further development of, um, of mining resources and Australia's mining resources. But it will probably be less in those mainstay bigger commodities more in things like copper, lithium, uh, and those sorts of areas. That's why I asked the question about India before. Yeah. Where India was here, China was here. Would yes. India would, not have pay China, but would they get Look, it's started? going to be, that will be the, that's probably the swing factor in that whole question. What will happen with India? And what will be its rate out over the long term? And, you know, I think if the stars align for India, then you're going to see something of that order, will it be as big? I'm not sure. And as fast and as rapid. I mean, think about what's happened in 20 years. It's just been huge yeah. you know, for China. Could that be repeated in any other country at that kind of scale over that period of time? I'm not so sure. I think it might have seen just a phenomenon. And uh, we'll certainly see growth, but I'm not sure we're going to see that kind of rapidity and, and height of growth. Okay, constant time, David. Thank you very much. And obviously, David's with us for the duration. So, any other questions or comments? Um, Dale, I'd like to welcome Dale, Dale Thompson um, from Osmine. Uh, I think many of you know Dale, but Dale uh, has extensive experience in, uh, in business improvement development, um, sales and marketing in Australia and overseas. Uh, through his role um, leading the Entrepreneurs Program um, with Osmine. Dale's worked with hundreds of, uh, over 100 different businesses on improving operations to reduce risk, 
um, for business owners while improving returns uh, and obviously has a wealth of knowledge in the health sector. Dale. Thank you, and thank you, Kristen and David, for setting the scene. I'd like to talk about the opportunities that exist in this METS industry and how the free trade agreements might affect those industries. When I was first asked to give this presentation, I thought about a, a comment by Albert Einstein. He said, I was given a problem in an hour to solve it, and my life depended on it. I'd spent 55 minutes looking at the problem and five minutes on the solution. So I think it's important to actually understand the METS industry and where the countries in the foreign trade agreements, it's China, Japan and Korea, are actually headed and where their technology is going. So we'll have a quick look at Industry 4.0, we'll look at zero marginal cost economies, and then we'll look at some geographic opportunities in China, Japan, Korea and Australia. We'll then look at the opportunities and what we need to do, look at how government support can actually help you in those programs. So within the next marketplace, we see a a lot of talk about the Industry 4.0, data analytics, big data, sensing on every instrument. Um, I'd like to just sit back and say, where's this come from and how long has it been around? Well, in 2005, Komatsu tried the first automated truck in Chile in the copper mine. So they've been around for 13 years. In 2008, Rio Tinto put automated trucks, autonomous trucks in the builder. That's 10 years ago. So people are sitting back saying, oh, autonomous mining, we've been doing it for 10 years. Um, at last year's IMAR conference, Michelle Ash, who's the Chief Innovation Officer for Barrett Gold, said that by 2023, we will have no miners underground or no miners above 4,500 metres for operational productivity reasons and for safety reasons. Now, you can take that one of two ways. Either those operations are going to be automated or they're going to sell them off. And I think the latter is probably unlikely. So they'll be moving into automation. Another example of how automation is affecting the industry uh, came to me from Alberto Calderon, who's the CEO of Orica. He gave a presentation two weeks ago at the Melbourne Mining Club. He said that in 2012, it was the height of the resources boom and commodity pricing, and everything was about tons. Just do what you have to to get it out the door. By 2014, at the bottom of the commodity price, it was all about cost down. And they were driving the med sector to reduce their costs. By 2018, it's now about automation. So if you can create some value with your automation and your intelligence systems, you've actually got a position in the marketplace. To address that, Orica have developed Wi-Fi electronic detonators. That sounds like a lot of technology for not very much gain. What an electronic detonator enables you to do is to time the shot precisely to gain the best fragmentation. By using Wi-Fi or electronic communications, you no longer have the wires and cables on the bench. So it improves the safety of the operation and you can remove the person from the bench, which means you can now use an autonomous explosive truck. So they've got Wi-Fi electronic decks and robotic trucks loading shots. That's a huge improvement in efficiency and effectiveness. So when we're talking about all these robotic opportunities, uh, I've read up on the International Federation of Robotics on their paper from 2016. They said that China was 20% of the world's population are taking 40% of the world's robots. In 2015, <coughs> Xi Jinping said, we need to get on this automation train. We need to improve our own production facilities 
So they are building autonomous factories. They're actually taking 87,000 robots a year, manufacturing robots. 87,000 manufacturing robots every year. To set the, that into context, the Republic of South Korea, they take 41,600, about half. Japan, take 38,600. Australia, we were in the other bit, down the bottom of the chain. So, so we're not setting up to, to compete in that environment. And that environment is something that was described by Jeremy Rifkin back in 1980. He talked about the world economy asymptoting towards a zero marginal cost economy. That's where you've set up your automated factory and the extra cost to produce one item is zero. That's a zero marginal cost economy. And as we asymptote towards that, making stuff is a competitive marketplace where you really need to be the lowest common denominator. So if we look geographically at the market and we say, what's happening in China? Where would the METS industry go? Well, we're certainly not going to try and compete on producing stuff because China's got all robots. But they are actually closing a lot of their old underground and surface operations that are heavily labour orientated, they're unsafe, small narrow openings, you can't automate them, so they're closing them and they're opening new autonomous mines. That creates an opportunity for Australian service companies to take their technology there. Environmental companies can take their information there. There's not much mining going on in Japan these days, but there is a lot of legacy mines in Japan that are producing acid mine drainage that needs to be treated. And we have environmental consultants in this country that can help them treat that problem. So there's an export opportunity for Australian METs that will be ongoing for years. In Korea, we think about massive engineering companies. Korea, where they built Prelude, that's now operating off the northwest shelf of Western Australia in the LNG market, the FLNG plant. We actually had an Australian service company providing the insulation fire protection on that rig. So a company from Sydney went over there, used local labour, and used their skills to project manage the fire protection on And I know that because I work with the company as one of my Ostmine business advisory clients. So the challenge that faces the Australian METC industry is to create value in their products and services in a zero marginal cost economy. We need to upskill our jobs, we need to stop digging faster and start digging smarter. So when we did a survey at Ostmine, we did a survey to look at the mining companies and actually ask them what they saw as important in a METS provider. 67% responded quality. That's how you compete, quality. 56% indicated that relationships were highly important. 43% said that skilled staff now we can develop the skilled staff with the training organisations and through the mining houses of Australia. 29% said unique products. 22% said new technologies. But only 15% said price. We don't need to compete in a zero marginal cost economy in a race to the bottom line. We need to be better, have good relationships and have new technology. Just to look at some examples of that, David, you indicated Gecko is a METS company here in Victoria. Gecko produced mineral processing equipment, and to their claim to fame, 
was surprised that they could pull it off. But uh, Hope River is a gold mine operating above the Arctic Circle. It's at the far end of the ice road. They built the gold processing plant, and I think it was 250-odd containers. Reagents from different markets brought it all together, shipped it in one season, and then built the plant, and now it's working. That's an amazing achievement, and that skill is here in Victoria. Uh, if I think across the, uh, the ditch to Tasmania, Elphinstone Underground Equipment. Elphinstone manufacture underground mining equipment in Tasmania. They have the cost penalty of bringing in the raw materials. They have the cost penalty of taking that equipment across to the North Island so they can then ship it to the rest of the world and they can compete in that market because our mess is highly skilled, we have unique products, we have very good quality. And David, your comment about the major miners want to work with the major companies like CAP Komatsu. That's why Elphinstone used the CAP drive train. Because if you buy a piece of Elphinstone equipment that breaks down, you can go and get a CAT spare part off the shelf anywhere around the world. But there are companies in Tasmania who are in the CAT international supply chain. They're accredited authorised suppliers of CAT parts to CAT in Tasmania. We have a huge mess industry here achieving success. Pilbara Insulation is that company that did the prelude in the uh, Korean shipyard. Uh, just to quote a different example, there's a company that I thought was quite in intelligent and innovative and quite an inspiration, Rode Microphones. Who would think you could make microphones in Australia? The world's recording artists seek out Rode to get their microphones because they're simply the best. They employ 60 million, they have a turnover of 60 million dollars, have a factory of 10,000 square metres, and employ 250 people. An Australian company, a success story. We can do this stuff, we just need to do it. The equipment maintenance market in the mining or met sector is 23% of the business. So by using our smarts and our intelligent people, we can then offer service and maintenance on this mining equipment. Um, an example of that is Head Engineering, who are producing bespoke automated equipment for undertaking the dangerous op operations on mine equipment. Like when you take a mine truck tyre apart to replace it and repair it, it requires automated equipment so you can take the miner away from that dangerous operation. Mine maintenance, actually doing the maintenance around the mine on the equipment and the geology and infrastructure. Business operations, let's look at the software. We're talking about 60% of the mining engineering software comes out of Australia. That's huge, we can do that. The advanced manufacturing, well, I think Gecko and Elphinstone are pretty good examples of advanced manufacturing. And the mining equipment that we manufacture here. Uh, think of RME in Queensland. They manufacture automated equipment for changing the wear plates on the inside of sag mills. So all of a sudden now we used to send the miner into the mill to drill out the wear plates and put new ones in. It's one of the most dangerous operations. Now we've got automated equipment that can do that process and they are selling this equipment around the world to repair the sag mills in uh, mining operations. They came out of Toowoomba. So there's plenty of opportunities here. So how does the government help that? Well, I'm part of the Entrepreneurs Program. 
We work with the SMEs who are Australian Nets. And what we do is we provide business assistance and advice to help them step up to the next level, to be ready for export markets, to be ready to meet the Industry 4.0 challenge, help them to innovate and move forward. And that's what I have for you. Thanks, Carl. Thank uh, anybody have any sort of additional thoughts or uh, questions for Dale? Just in terms of uh, obviously a very entrepreneurial sector in the next sector here in Australia. Uh, just a quick comment, Gecko had a great wrap up on landlines. Uh, I did that. It's uh, actually working uh, with dairy farmers and uh, using uh, their techniques for uh, processing um, animal uh, waste and uh, efficiencies in uh, their general electricity. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, to see the CEO just talk to sort of local farms and their vending garden places, it's quite, uh, I think we should be proud of companies like that. Yes. That's a new division, they just split yeah. that off. And very good, it's good. Well, no, it's, it's good to see yeah, that put on TV. Yes. I, I think I made the comment that you know that, that the companies tend to be SMEs. Yes. What do you think that is? I mean, given the size of the mining sector, all of the history that Australia has in mining, what do you think it is we don't have any sort of apart from say Korea, globally dominant um, mess sector companies? I think that's because we tend to specialise in technology and that tends to splinter off. We don't become large companies manufacturing like cat produce thousands of bulldozers every day. Uh, the software and the intelligent services that we provide is more entrepreneurial, it's more the skills and the knowledge in one head that tends to revolve around that. So that's a good question. We were talking just briefly before we commenced today, and RMIT is doing a lot of work in the enterprise formation and business creation space for students, alumni, and also for academics and researchers. Um, in the net sector, are you seeing large companies placing bets in terms of investing in startup companies in, uh, in the net sector so that they've got to line into some of these small entrepreneurial startups with a view to future acquisition or acquiring technologies? or is it fairly, um, I guess, undeveloped in terms of how they're doing? Little the banks, they've all got you know, incubators and accelerators, we've got other organisations there doing things internally and also investing in other companies in different industries just to sort of, you know, I guess, put a few lifeboats out there, so to speak, in terms of what they're doing. Are you seeing that in the next space at all? In terms of the incubator space, the unearthed people are doing hackathons and they're encouraging a lot of entrepreneurs, early startup, pre-startup, pre-revenue companies. Um, not seeing a lot of support for people once they've gone past the pre-revenue stage. I think you're right. It's only just starting now. You're starting to see some of the major companies doing just that. Because they're really in a bit of a different game now with you know trying to sort of get their minds around the big data and what it means and take therefore lessons from other industries and so forth. So I think you started to see this point number one. But point number two, and I'd be interested in your comment, though, whether you agree with me, that what has stood in the way of some of that at least has been 
probably the desire of the major mining companies to keep the technology in-house, to keep the intellectual property uh, rights to it in-house. We're starting to see that sort of opening up as well now. Um, I know BHP, for example, has been clear about the fact that he wants to go much more open source technology. So that if there's a common platform which we compete on that platform, therefore you'll be able to get more competition after all, and therefore more services supplies to them. That's not uniform across the industry, it's slower. In fact, it's quite different. To, you know, most of my history was in the oil and gas industry. It's quite different to the oil and gas industry where I would say that, you know, really the the people who brought who, you know, technological advance to the industry tended to be out of the services companies. The Schlumbergers, the Halliburton's, you know, the Honeywell's, it's companies like that that really brought that sort of kick along in that investment. It was because there wasn't probably so much, apart from maybe one or two of them, they just attachment to having to hold the intellectual property in house. And I think we'll see that change. Uh, the companies go about it in different ways, but. Um, I just wonder whether you might have seen that to be a bit of a barrier as well. I think you're right in that it is, is uh, or has been a paradigm that if we can develop a better mining method or a new piece of equipment and we have that mineral processing, uh, the eyes not process, if we can gain that technology, we can have an advantage in the marketplace at a given commodity price. Um, we are now seeing a shift that's opening up. A comment about the engine for oil and gas. We saw a lot of the oil and gas industry electrification control automation equipment. People like Chevron, Shell, and the like have used technology in that sector for 20 plus years. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, including badge, but now all of a sudden, the mining sector is saying we're getting into oil and um, Is the industry itself the the old boys club that the mining game has been in Australia and still is going to be a hurdle for the mining industry to actually achieve what the oil and gas industry is achieving. It's a great question. Um, look, I think that you know essentially what's happening is that you know, the mining industry is seeing reality and that it is much more of a globalised player. And you're getting look, you even look at a guy like um, Andrew McKenzie now. He brings a lot of ideas from oil and gas and from other environments. You look at uh, JS at Rio Tinto, again, not part of the, if there was an old boys club in Australian mining, that's being broken apart by, you know, new senior management in the industry with very different ideas operating much more to global templates. So my own view is that, you know, inevitably you will find that that will break down that sort of, I know there has been, it's fair to say, some kind of resistance from that. There's been a bit of an arrogance about the major mining companies and the way in which they dealt with supplies. That was curious to me coming from the oil and gas industry where number one requirement was you partner with your suppliers because they're a rival party business. Not, I'm generalising here, that's not always the case in the mining sector, but it has been in the not too distant past, where there has been a little bit of that view within the industry to say that we're big, we can you know, command, uh, you'll, you'll, you, you come to us and we'll tell you where we want you to fit in. It's all a little bit one sided in some respects. That's breaking down now. 
reality is breaking down, competition is breaking us down, and really, you know, new methods of mining and a new focus on technology is Well, I'm conscious of time, um, and uh, I think maybe we might look to, unless there's any other questions, um, sort of wrap up the official part of uh, today. I know that we were running through till about 2 o'clock, but um, just before I do so, I just want to say thanks very much to you, Kristen, uh, David, and also Dale, um, for your presentations and comments, and also to others for questions and, and discussion today. Um, please feel free to um, stay back, uh, have a conversation, um, no need to rush off, uh, and thanks very much for attending. Thank you. Thank you.